and welcome to another episode of the More From Law podcast. I'm your host, Harry Clark. This episode features Ivan Panton, a computer science graduate looking to leverage his STEM background to enter the legal profession. In this episode, Ivan and I discussed the similarities between the STEM fields and law, the intersection of law and technology, as well as how future tech such as self-driving cars will be regulated. Let's get into it. So hi, Ivan. Thanks so much for coming on the show. No problem. It's a pleasure to have you here. Um, I know we actually got talking through LinkedIn a little while ago, which is why you're here today. Um, and we're actually discussing something today that I have zero expertise on, which is really exciting, um, which is the whole STEM background and, and kind of how you've utilized your STEM background to get into the legal profession. Um, mm. But before we get too much into that, um, a nice little icebreaker question I like to ask people when they come on the show. Um, and I think it's really relevant for this episode. Um, why did you originally want to join the legal profession? Um, and for people who kind of haven't met you, what's your sort of background today? Uh, so I'll answer the first one first. Um, so uh, I've always had the law, inverted commas, somewhere in the background. Grandfather was a lawyer. Um, and so it's always been there and always been a thought, hmm, could I do that? And people have been saying, yes, you might be good at it. As things happened, I originally wanted to be a pilot, but colorblind, so that's not really very feasible. <laughs> <laughs> can't really be a red arrow if you can't see colors, apparently. Um <laughs> Should be quite obvious, really. Uh, so I went down a more technical route, which led mm-hmm. me through STEM, so computer science and then cybersecurity has been my most recent specialization, followed by um, artificial intelligence. So I'm doing research into AI at the moment, how you can combine different AIs together to combine their output. That's really cool. And I can see how your, uh, your, your kind of interest in technology could um, integrate quite nicely with kind of the future of law and, and where you mm. kind of think the visions for the future will be going. Um, but I'll ask you more about towards the end of the episode. Sure. Um, but first, this STEM concept. Um, so for people who are listening who don't know, necessarily know what STEM is, um, what is the STEM background all about? And having operated and kind of worked in that field and studied there, why have you then decided to transition across to law? So STEM is, of course, science, technology, engineering, mathematics, anything in between or perhaps around it as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and so taking from that, uh, obviously had the computer science background, thinking about law, um, a lot of the problems can be thought about in a similar sort of way. Mm-hmm. Um, so, for example, the way the different large organizations, legal entities work, how they interplay with um, sort of state entities. So how does the law for a bank in a UK jurisdiction compare with if they want to do something in the Americas? And you can sort of have a parallel with that with how you design systems that have got to work with different hardware, different software. Um, so it's the intellectual challenge, um, mm-hmm. probably more than anything, um, being able to push myself in that direction and take the sort of computational thinking it's described as mm-hmm. and apply that in a legal context. A lot of the problems that I've seen, so the structure of an M&A deal, you can tie in that sort that way of problem solving. So how you decompose it, what are the different bits that go together? How do they interrelate? Um, there's a sort of a systems integration problem, which I found quite enjoyable so far. That's really interesting. And I've heard similar arguments and kind of similar talking when it comes to the question of whether lawyers should learn to code. Um, I think if you get down to detail, like you kind of hinted at there, um, there's not a huge swathe of difference between how coders think towards problems and how lawyers do for legal ones. Um, You know, you take the idea that a client comes to you with a problem and you're going to say, okay, in X, Y, Z circumstances, we're going to apply this test and proceed this way. Um, It's it's somewhat similar to those kind of if-else statements that you would get in coding and trying to think about how to problem solve that way. So um, I guess that's an example, really, of how your STEM background has kind of influenced you um, and, if anything, helped you so far when it comes to giving legal problems a go and trying them out. 
Um, yeah, I'd say that, definitely. Um, in terms of that lovely question of should coders be lawyers or should co lawyers become coders mm. or some kind of thing in the middle, I think software doesn't solve every problem and a lot of people like to throw technology at solutions, mm. but it's not always the best way forward. I mean, we're seeing now that a lot of people are struggling with the remote working situation that lots of people are taking on at the moment. And technology isn't the best solution in all cases. So lots of jobs, you can't use technology. And for example, the way AI systems work, um, thinking about how you'd apply those to a legal problem, there's not going to be a computer that can solve all the legal problems because it's so nuanced. Um, you can't just automatically generate contracts for every possible case. There's going to be cases mm. which the system can't cope because it's really uncharted territory. It's unprecedented as that lovely word is at the moment. <laughs> so that's where you need the human side because um, a computer will do what you tell it to mm. um, much the frustration when we get it wrong so should all lawyers be coders no uh, should some i think yes um, mm -hmm. i think it's great to see firms like a chance link laters norton rose um, they're innovating in the tech space quite heavily mm. and of course many others are as well and i'm guessing you could quite easily leverage your your background to pursue that sort of field are you kind of interested in that kind of intersection between law and technology then um, I think so. I've still not quite um, had a chance to practically play with that. Mm -hmm. But where I'm particularly interested in is looking at the way that, for example, AI in big inverted commas, um, how that works and how we're trying to regulate that. Because a lot of mm -hmm. governments are thinking, oh, this could, this could be problematic because you've got these social issues of what if many, many, many jobs are taken by AI systems um, which some people will cast off as a sort of Luddite argument, Luddite fear. Others mm -hmm. will go, no, this is a very real problem. And so how do we regulate the use of AI technologies? Um, I'm using AI as a very broad catch-all here. Mm. Um, what about the data that we're putting into that? Uh, so with the coronavirus situation at the moment, what, are, what, is, what data are we using? And what's the impact of that data being used? It's really funny you say that. And uh, when you're talking about consent, I'm always already thinking that you're kind of talking like a lawyer <laughs> in the sense that um you know gdpr obviously came along and changed how consent things work um so it's really interesting to see how you're kind of leveraging your tech perspective on the legal field and just a question then i guess for people who are stem students or you know considering stem field and, and kind of wondering how it translates to law um what's your kind of advice for how they can um sort of leverage their skill sets in the stem field and find ones and, and portray them in a way which are applicable to the field of law so i think a lot of it comes down to the problem solving nature mm -hmm. of legal work because um, even if you're doing something um, that say, for example trainees do so due diligence tasks um well, you're still solving a problem. If you can learn how to break it down, um, work out what the links between things are. Mm. So in a, I can't really talk from a mathematician's point of view, but physics, um, you might talk about first principles. Um, what are the rules within which we can operate? And you think about that in terms of a computer system when you're programming, for example, what's the hardware constraints? Um, and it's the same if you apply it to a legal problem. What's, what's the jurisdictional constraints? If we're using multi-jurisdictions, what happens in one jurisdiction might not apply in another, might be more significant to compared to, say, a different form of law um, in a different jurisdiction. And 
understanding the problem, breaking it down, working out what's more significant, what has a greater weighting. Um, that's generally how I've found um, like a STEM background, particularly computer science, beneficial because mm. it's about it's a way of thinking really, and it's not just I can program a computer, I can program AI. It's well, you understand the problem in that way, and you apply that way of problem thinking to the law. And of course, law students break down legal problems probably slightly differently to the way I do. Mm. But um, in, for example, cybersecurity, there's a big skills shortage and there's not much diversity of thought. The same could probably be said for the law. Mm. And so having people with different backgrounds is an advantage. That's why firms aren't just looking to recruit from a law school such as York or Cambridge or wherever. It's okay, well, you've done an English degree. Well, that will teach you a way of how nuanced language can be, for example. Mm. Um, computer science in my case um, that's another way of thinking that's useful so you need to just sort of have a blend of things and recognize that every degree will have its own unique skill sets and competencies it develops and working out what particularly works for you um, because it's hard to prescribe for each one because we all work differently Um, working out what works well for you is the key I guess to being able to leverage that in an actual interview and application Absolutely. And it's really interesting. You kind of said there about the purposes of the degrees and kind of um, you know, the expectations of going through it and all. And, you know, there's been studies done of law students when they're just about to start their first year at university. Um, and overwhelmingly, people kind of, I think, through the, the images of TV and media, have the idea that they're going to be a barrister, they're going to be <laughs> court and standing. And then you actually look at the figures for where people end up at the end of their law degrees and something like 50 percent of students don't even go on to practice in the field of law after their law degree. So. I guess it just goes to show that I guess the, there's so much transferability both inside and outside of a law degree and that, you know, you can certainly leverage those kind of STEM skills, like you said, um, within the operation of a, of a legal career and, hmm. and not really have any detriment. But if anything, like you said, a kind of different perspective on the problem that, that firms will really, really look for in the whole process. Um, so for STEM students who are listening then, who are kind of stuck between going down their respective or traditional STEM field and considering law, um, you've kind of hinted that there's quite a lot of similarities when it comes to thought patterns and kind of problem solving what would you say are the main differences is it is it just the content of the problems that you're solving um so i guess for me the biggest difference has been the fact that when i've had technical interviews so for sort of consulting um, mm-hmm. consulting type roles perhaps you could call them an engineering style of role there's been a lot of focus on what's your technical knowledge um, how deep can you go into the tech but that doesn't really apply as much to the law and so i found the recent assessment center i went to for one of the firms in London, I was speaking too much about tech and not quite enough about, well, okay, what's the wider commercial sense of things? Because in technical interviews in STEM, I've found that there's less of a commercial awareness than there is with respect to law. So for training contract applications, VAC scheme applications, if you don't have commercial awareness, you're probably going to struggle. Um, I think you'll probably share that thought. But in technical ones i found that that's been a really surprising added bonus if you're able to sort of make those connections but it's been more about technology um, in my experience so i guess that's the real difference is this episode of the more from law podcast is sponsored by get into law if you're listening it's like you're looking to break into or learn more about the legal profession get into law are a law careers advice community that's on a mission to build the most active value-driven legal platform in the world through social media They help support aspiring lawyers by providing skills, tools, and resources you need to begin your legal career. If you want access to their latest daily tips, guides, and resources, including some I've written myself, be sure to follow them on Instagram and LinkedIn by searching for the handle, Get Into Law.
so we've talked a lot of this episode you know, about STEM backgrounds and when it comes to actually practicing and kind of you've been through the application process yourself. Yeah. Um, and one thing I did want to ask you about was something which I think is a commonality, not just among law students, but non-law students as well, which is the idea of imposter syndrome. Um, and I think especially coming from a STEM background, I can quite easily see how you know students get the idea that they're not suited to the legal career path or that they're not good enough because they don't have that LLB knowledge that um, you know, law students have leveraged. Um, what was your own kind of personal experiences of, of dealing with that imposter syndrome coming from that STEM background? And what's your advice to those listening who are, who are struggling with it now? Um, so I guess the first thing is to be sort of accepting of the fact that you haven't had a legal background, perhaps, mm -hmm. um, because that's obviously what the facts are. Uh, you haven't mm -hmm. come from a legal background, but the fact that you've made it past the sort of initial sift, you've done Watson Glazer, perhaps, uh, you're sat in um, a lovely office having a conversation with someone who wants to know a bit more about you. The fact that you're there means that they've identified something in you in your application, uh, perhaps in your CV, saying, oh, that's, this person's interesting. And of course, I'm a final year computer scientist. And um, for me, getting a vacation scheme at a magic circle firm without having had many open days or previous fact schemes or any form of legal experience, really, um, that was a bit like, oh, okay, well, should I really be? Because um, we obviously want it, but without having had the long train of open days that you see on um, lots of law students' profiles on LinkedIn, for example, mm -hmm. uh, you can feel that you're perhaps not quite in the right place. You haven't, you don't know the ins and outs of law yet. Uh, that comes in the GDL and the LPC and learning beyond that, of course. But I think the thing is that firms take a holistic view of things. So it's about whether you can add value, whether you've got an interesting way of thinking interesting experiences or perhaps an interesting worldview um, and the fact that you're a bit different will be beneficial in the way that they solve problems mm. so recognizing that you've got something different to bring um, that's perhaps equally as good that's a way I've come about overcoming it and when you have conversations with people and they come from a law background well you're just having a conversation with someone who's got something interesting to say hopefully <laughs> I think more firms recently are trying to be more inclusive so um, it's good to have the diversity of thought and background. Um, and I guess law students probably feel it as well because the competition is quite fierce no matter what yeah. the background is. <laughs> yeah, no, training contracts are fierce for sure. And um, you made a really, really important point there, which is diversity of thought um, and not just diversity of background. Um, and I think that's what some of the best firms really look for when it comes to candidates. Um, you know, they're not just looking for 30 Harvey Spectres to walk in a room and all work no. together because ultimately you need that difference of personality you need that difference of thinking process and thought patterns like we've kind of hinted at throughout this episode um, and so you know I always do really encourage people coming from that STEM background to to really view their unique story and wanting to join law as a real strength and, and kind of offering something that law students can't when it comes to their technical knowledge for example or, or how they've kind of had different experiences to learn about their problem solving and so I guess going forward for you, what's the kind of plan when it comes to going from the STEM background into the world of law? What's your sort of aspirations as to the type of lawyer that you want to be and where you want to, want to be working? That's an interesting question. Um, <laughs> you might not know the answer. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, I don't think any of us at our stage definitely know exactly where we're going to end up being mm -hmm. um, and how we'll really feel about it till we get there. But at the moment, I'm interested in AI and cybersecurity regulation as my main thing because I've got the background in those technologies and because I understand quite deeply how they work and what the problems are in implementing and using them um, and thinking about the way that those problems um, are being solved at the moment or haven't yet been solved as is often the case 
applying the law to that and applying them to the law is quite interesting and I think it's a growing area which is beneficial if we think from a long-term viewpoint um, mm. somewhere that's growing rather than declining <laughs> yep <laughs> but there's also the question of perhaps intellectual property law um, so one of the bits of work I'm doing at the moment is looking at how you can generate art and art obviously has a connotation with intellectual property and mm. when you start playing with artists art um, so the, the works that they've created what happens when you play with it um, and create a new form of art perhaps or a new style who owns that intellectual property is it someone who designed the ai that you plug this into and you've then got some wonderful probably psychedelic art out of mm. um, as the results tend to be at the moment or is it the original artist is it me for making this choice to combine the technology and the sort of creative artist side of things um, or is it a combination and so that's those are interesting problems to solve so i guess that's where i want to go but it's it's quite hard to find a direct path to that <laughs> yeah no for sure but it, it reminds me of a really kind of common i guess ethical problem that that you kind of hear about when it comes to thinking about how computer science and law and kind of just practicalities of ethics kind of all work together and mm. um, that's kind of like the self-driving car problem so yes. <laughs> you know the self-driving car you know has some kind of malfunction some kind of error ends up hitting someone and um, where does the liability lie when it comes to who is responsible is it the manufacturer is it the person who is coding that algorithm is it some other factor that's not involved and you know that there's a decision making um kind of going on when it comes to how the car is going to drive and how it's going to try and avoid the accident um, mm. As a kind of STEM student, what's your approach to that problem as to where the liability lies and, and who's in the wrong? I'd be really interested to hear it. Uh, so I've thought about that problem quite a bit, actually. Um, mm -hmm. I find it quite interesting and it's always great. If, um, say, for example, if you're down the pub with your friends, <laughs> trying to scope that out. I mean, not everyone talks about legal problems when they're having a drink, but um, it is an interesting one because a lot of things to do with law will think about, uh, say, for example, in litigation who is responsible for the bad thing that has happened in this case a car running someone over or crashing into someone's building or another person or another car um and so a lot of people might look at the challenge and say well okay what's the decision making that's gone on well somebody's obviously bought an ai car um i'm using ai in big inverted commas again of course but mm -hmm. someone's bought this system and it's been developed by people probably all over the world with parts that are brought together or from all over the world mm. um and so can you blame the manufacturer of the brake calipers probably not um unless it's a more widespread issue but thinking about the actual ai system because that's the more interesting problem um if we don't know how the system works how do we know at what point it made the wrong decision and that's a challenge in a lot of these um, systems because you have sort of what's called a black box and so yes. you, the system, you'll give it some inputs, which could be sensor data, it could be the LIDAR, which is a type of um, range detecting system, fires out a laser, comes back, works out distances between objects and itself. You've got computer vision, looking through cameras at the outside world, drawing a picture in sort of a 3D environment in the car's computer, working out where it is and where the car is that it needs to avoid. And that's known as a black box system because it's quite complicated and I say quite very complicated. Mm -hmm. um, it's not easy or perhaps practical for someone to understand how it's got to that decision because the way that um, neural networks are constructed, for example, um, you have many, many layers of neurons, much like we do in our brain. And a neuron is in itself a little processing element. 
and if you've got the connections between the different neurons, um, they're weighted in certain ways, so some will be more preferable, some will be less preferable, and the output is dependent on all of these functions that happen. Um, we're getting quite mathsy here, <laughs> so I'll try to stick <laughs> back. Um, but the decision will come from somewhere in there, perhaps, to say break now or break half a second later, and that could make the difference. And you can't really appoint that to being a human's decision that has been made that has caused this crash because it probably wasn't even programmed by a human. You have you train an AI to solve a problem. And so is it the problem of the person who has trained the AI, who's come up with the training data, the test data? It becomes a very complex problem. In a lot of cases, um, people want to look to the manufacturer as the one who's liable. And I did read somewhere, I can't cite it properly right now, um, but I read that one of the major manufacturers was looking to take all liability from crashes mm. that happen with their autonomous cars just to try and get people to have a higher uptake. Um, mm. But I think we're a long way from having fully autonomous cars because the problem being people. You can't have an autonomous system and then a non-autonomous system working in tandem because people make mm. zillion mistakes and you can't really program for that in a reliable way. I think you've painted a really clear picture there of how I think like most legal problems, um, you know, there are so many different parties involved when it comes to their interests. Um, and I think the really interesting point about the self-driving car, like you mentioned there, is that is the autonomous aspect of it and the idea that um, decisions are being made without kind of that proper consent and awareness as to mm. um, how they've arrived at that conclusion. And I think if there's one thing that lawyers like is understanding the kind of mens rea of a situation and seeing how people have formulated intent and, you know, pre-planning or meditation. Uh, premeditation in any way when it comes to actions um so it's going to be really interesting to see in future how that kind of liability is is apportioned when it comes to these new and emerging technologies um but for now thanks so much for, for sharing your insight from that stem background it's no really fascinating to hear how you've kind of applied that model of thinking when it comes to um you know your ambitions to join the legal profession um it's really insightful um where can people go to learn more about you and to read more of your kind of stem antics in the, in the world of uh, self-driving cars or not <laughs> Um, so I've written a small paper about that, which people can get from me via email or from LinkedIn. Um, of course, mm -hmm. I've got my LinkedIn profile. I'm pretty active on there. I'm always up for a chat and hear from interesting people because you never really stop learning. It's nice to talk to new people. Absolutely. Um, and it's great to talk to you today and, and for me to learn some new things as well. Um, so thanks so much for coming on the show, Ivan. I really, really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Thanks so much for listening to this edition of the More From Law podcast. The amount of support the show has received recently has been unbelievable, so thanks again for playing your part in that by listening. If you'd like to support the show, please rate it five stars on the iTunes store and follow the show on your podcast platform of choice. It really helps the show reach more listeners. If you're looking for more tips, resources and guides, you can visit my website www.harryclarklaw.com where you can also sign up to my newsletter and stay up to date with everything that I'm up to. For now though, I'll see you in the next episode of More From Law.